A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Stuart Evers. Stuart Evers's novel, The Blind Light, was published in 2020 and shortlisted for the RSL Encore Award and longlisted for the Portico Prize. His debut, 10 Stories About Smoking, won the London Book Award in 2011, and his second collection, Your Father Sends His Love, was shortlisted for the 2016 Edgehill Short Story Prize. In 2017, Evers won the Eccles British Library Writers Award, one of Europe's richest prizes for a work in progress. So welcome to Arshal Stewart. It's really wonderful to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, it's kind of an exciting watershed moment for the show as well, because you're our first male guest in um, the countless episodes we've done so far. So as we, you and I were just speaking a little bit before the show about what great company you're in amongst some other, the very few male authors on the Virago list, right? Yes, certainly. And I, I think I might be only one of two that are alive, um, <laughs> which is the way I like it. I like those odds. Who's the other one? Do you know? Paul Binding, I think, who wrote the okay. biography of Eudora Welty. I'm pretty, cer- I'm pretty certain that's who it was. Well, you're in excellent company and it is a real thrill to have you on the show today. Um, you're here because last year you wrote a brilliant introduction to a new addition to the Virago Modern Classics list, Transit, um, the German writer Anna Segar's novel, which was originally published in 1944. I was hoping that you could maybe start off by telling our listeners a little bit about this extraordinary book and also about um, Segar herself, who I think is still perhaps somebody who is not quite as well known a writer as she should be today. No, I think that's true. At the time, she was one of the most popular, most well-known writers in pre-war Germany. So she was a vowed communist, which put her in the uh, the crosshairs of the Nazi party. And so she had to escape and flee France to, to anywhere that would essentially have a, a safe passage, mm. uh, which was to Mexico. Transit is a book about that moment about escaping from Marseille to somewhere of safety. And as a consequence, it has, I think, and I believe uh, everything that makes for a, for a great novel, it has an in- enticing voice. Um, it's a first person male voice and describes the bureaucracy of trying to leave. So the reason why the book is called Transit is because the in order to leave Marseille, one needs a transit pass. And that's what the central character seemingly is there to get a transit pass so they can leave to Marseille. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, we never really get to find out the real name of the uh, of, of the of the narrator. Um, and the narrator 
breaks in to the story a lot to kind of make sure that you know the reaction so you're kind of part of the narrative you're part of the um of this terrible bureaucracy of trying to escape and to put it into context um uh, this is what Anna Segos lived she lived this life in Marseille waiting to escape um she was fortunate she managed to get away other people including Walter Benjamin they did not escape they did not manage to make it away from Marseille they did not get the requisite passes um and this was written very very quickly after um her her successful escape uh, to Mexico um so it has a lot of historical background it has this this kind of real thing that really happened which is unfortunately just as relevant today in fact mm-hmm. i mean even when i was writing the introduction um it's astonishing to see how even more relevant today with the situation in ukraine and the the visa problems that are happening this is the exact same situation that sagas is describing just in 19, 1942 so it's it's an astonishing work it is funny mm. it is suspenseful it is postmodern without any particular kind of awful tricks to it um it has a love story which is ambivalent and um donna who commissioned me to write the introduction and i had a big argument as to whether the love story is an actual love story or not and it's one of those books that depending on what you're interested in you can pick things out of the experience because all of life is here in this marseille it's 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 life in a waiting room you know it's it's waiting to have this big off moment of off and and the central character who i always refer to as Siedler because that's one of the names that he's given um is unique in that he doesn't want to leave everybody else wants to leave will do anything to leave but he does not want to leave what is also fascinating about the book is that some people find the ending disappointing because there is an is there, there is a kind of edge of hope to it but you've got to remember that as Sagas was writing this she did not know what the result of the second world war was going to be it it was not a foregone conclusion that that the right side would win so you know it ends in this kind of note of of kind of hope and of uh, kind of upbeat ending or sort of upbeat ending uh, which some people find it find a bit pat but I think is is just humanizes the book even further mm. um in its in its quest to depict what it is like to be on the precipice of disaster and then how do you live a normal life within that and you know the, the, uh, there's a lot of parallels with with my book the blind light in terms of like how we deal with our ordinary basic human um uh, sensibilities when the awfulness surrounds us and this this kind of terror happens um but i think that transit it brings all of those things together in just the most propulsive kind of way there's an there's a thriller element to it there's kind of postmodern like you know kind of like you can imagine paul oster having having read this book and getting the notion of doubles doubles from that that you know i think saramago does a similar thing later with with doubles uh, in the double um but i think for me having read it now four times because I, I i obviously read it a, a long time ago when it was reissued by uh the new york review review of books back in um back in the late 2000s i think um and i didn't allow myself to re to read the introduction until hmm. uh until i re reread the introduction until 
um, I finished writing mine to that to that edition. And in and just you can see the difference in in whatever it was 10, 15 years, is that um the the person who had written the introduction had said that uh, it was a relief that this kind of bureaucracy and petty mindedness had left international politics. Wow. Uh, and it was like, well, you know, what's to come? And I think, but I think that even notwithstanding, even if we'd got rid of um, this, uh, this notion and that the whole world was, was a wonderful free place and, uh, and without terror and, and despotism, uh, I believe that this novel would still stand shoulders up with the best novels of the, of the latter part of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, her command of understanding of, of people and not just people in crisis, but people who have given up, people who are literally drinking in the last chance saloon or those people who are willing to do things in peacetime as they would in um, as they would in, in, in time of war just to get by. Uh, can I, could, would you mind if I just read a little bit from it? Would that be all right? No, please do. Yeah. So the opening paragraph of this novel, I just think is it just sums up everything I think about the book. And I think it's Philip Roth who said that if you wanted to know about all of his books, you just read the first paragraph and it should com- com- you know, have the whole book in that first mm. paragraph. And I think this is, this is, this is one of those. So, so this is the, the opening of chapter one. They're saying that the Montreal went down between Dakar and Ma- Martinique, that she ran into a mine. The shipping company isn't releasing any information. It may just be a rumour. But when you compare it to the fate of other ships and their cargoes of refugees, which were hounded over all the oceans and never allowed to dock, which were left to burn on the high seas rather than being permitted to drop anchor merely because their passengers' documents had expired a couple of days before, then what happened to the Montreal seems like a natural death for a ship in wartime. That is, if it isn't at all just a rumour. And provided the ship in the meantime hasn't been captured or ordered back to Dakar. In that case, the passengers would now be sweltering in a camp at the edge of the Sahara. Or maybe they're already happily on the other side of the ocean. Probably you find all of this pretty unimportant. You're bored? I am too. May I invite you to join me at my table? Unfortunately, I don't have enough money for a regular supper. But how about a glass of rosé and a slice of pizza? Come, sit with me. Would you like to watch them bake the pizza on the open fire? Then sit next to me. Or would you prefer the view of the old harbour? Then you better sit across from me. You can see the sun go down behind forks at Nicholas. That re- that certainly won't be boring. And I just, every time I read that, I just think that's the whole book. That's the, you know, mm. that's the whole book. And the juxtapositions and the differences and the choices. You have a choice of where to sit and you can see different things from those two positions. All of that, all of that just brings it all together in this, the choices that you have, and they're so limited, limited. Mm. and then, and then the, the instant reaction is that you must be bored. And this, <laughs> this is, this is a thing that goes on where she's just, you know, like, oh God, you know, I'm so, I'm so bored of hearing stories about people escaping from prison. And then the narrator four pages on explains how he escaped from prison, you know, like mm. it's, it's the grim inevitability and, you know, reading this during covid or rereading this during covid made me think of the same things where suddenly no one had a sense of conversation outside of what was immediately going on so it's like how was your covid like it was like how did you escape how did you end up in marseille how you know like have you got your papers you know and 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 suddenly that's the that's the focal part of your life but obviously you have to get on with other things and there is a, a tremendous 
moment in the book where um, the person who he has ended up, the, the authorities think he's he's a writer who's dead, basically, but they don't know that the writer's dead. Neither does the writer's wife. The writer's wife is desperately trying to find him and, every, and goes into every bar in Marseille trying to find him. Um, because everyone thinks that Seedler is the, the woman's husband, um, she keeps hearing that he's been in this, she's been seen in this bar. So she keeps chasing, she's literally chasing a ghost. Mm. Um, and while he is able to stop that, he doesn't. And then this, as I said, Donna and I disagree as to, where, <laughs> as to whether <laughs> this is a real love affair or not. Which um, side do you come down on? I don't think it is. Okay. Um, and I, I think that, there's a lot about narrative in this book, both in terms of the narratives we create ourselves, plus the narrative that the that the the, that the writer and the um, uh, and the central voice is creating. Um, and what I feel is that um, is that all the narratives have been exhausted by the time that you get to Marseille. You know, you you've talked about your escape. You've got there. You're sitting there. Um, you're bored because all you can do is drink rosé and eat pizza. Um, and talk about those pastimes so inevitably what do you do now and the next thing to do is to have a a love affair that's Mm. what people do in these situations you know like that's and it it, it always feels to me like he feels like he has to do this that this is this is what is expected of him in this particular situation right and so I don't you know and I feel that similarly uh, the the object of his so-called affection doesn't really feel the same way it just feels like that is the way that these two people have met these two people have been put into a situation and these two people are expected to go a particular way and I think that he's almost convincing himself just as much as she is convincing herself you know um so it's a but again it it, it leaves you your own sense of uh of trying to understand what exactly is going on but it also asks you a, a very subtle very whispered question is that how do you think you would react in this situation mm. what mm. is what what would you be doing when everything is cut off and you know when you get to the the hilarious kind of bureaucracy bureaucracy scenes where he's trying to get various different passes to do various different things um and they're hilarious you know there's a real sense of humor there and it really is catch 22 before catch 22 exists. There's lots of that going on, um, obviously based on, on real lived experience. Um, but there is this kind of depth of depression that goes with that, where you just think, I, I don't know how I'm going to get on. And there, there, there are moments in between the kind of humor and the boredom where you meet these people who are desperate, mm. who need to leave. And a, a man in a, in a in a um in a bar that he meets has got to within one um ticket of being able to leave but one of the one of the other ones is going to expire at midnight so he's stuck um there's another i mean there's a brilliant character uh who's a woman who lives in the boarding house who um is walking these two awful dogs um and he said oh you know do you want to want to you know, you want to escape with your dogs. So these aren't my dogs. I hate these dogs, but I have to walk them. If I don't, if I don't have these dogs, I can't escape. I can't, I can't leave. So um, it's, it's got, like I say, I just think it's got everything that you could want. And at the end of it, it just, I I don't feel that it can, that it leaves you alone. 
I think that you, you, you see the world slightly differently, just like pitched ever so slightly differently as a consequence of it, mm. because it feels so livid. It feels so raw. And I think that writing about something from within the heart of it, um, as we've seen with COVID, it leads some people down blind alleys. It leads other people to 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 absolute incredible heights of what they're they're trying to achieve. I'm thinking of Sarah Hall's Burnt Coat novel, which I thought mm. was extraordinary, but very much divided people. And I think I think that's that's kind of the thing when you're living within that bubble, when you're living within those times, being able to write something clear-headed about it is, is really really difficult. Um, you know. You know, it always made me think when when Trump got in that you know that every novel in you know in ten years time will say you know in twenty sixteen Trump got into the presidency and my and my mother ran off with the milkman or whatever you know like that that, that those those kinds of things will probably happen um, but to write it within mm. within that and to make it good and not just make it good but make it effective and affecting and and not make that lived experience the most important part of it the the kind of sense of biographical input it's one of those fascinating books i think you point out so well in introduction about it being i think you you know you use the line writing fiction about history as is being lived is notoriously difficult which is mm. what you're talking about here but you're right that it, it not only stands as a testament to this particular time but it's so much more than that it's a novel like you say it has these postmodern elements it's got this incredibly inviting narrative voice and what it does with boredom i mean i've never sort of had i don't think i've ever read a novel in which boredom is so fascinating to read about right mm. like that that's just brilliant about it, it i couldn't I was taken aback at how wonderful this novel was. And I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Virago modern classics, but um, Donna does keep finding real gems to add to the list. And I think this is definitely one of the highlights. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think the boredom thing, I remember on uh, the late review, um, uh, Jermaine Greer saying to uh, saying about Brett and Ellis, uh, Mr. Ellis, boredom is not a literary device. Um, when in fact, actually, I think, you know, it is used brilliantly in this book, you know, mm. what, you know, boredom as um, as a force for change. You know, the, the 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 engine room of the plot of the book comes from the um, from the central character being bored. Yeah. He goes yeah. on and does something because he's bored. There's nothing else to do. And when you're bored, things can happen that way. Mm. Um, and I think that. I often think that boredom is a is a privilege right to be to be bored is, yes. is, is a huge privilege i mean you know it's it's a relatively recent phenomenon i would argue that people of all classes get to be bored sometimes what you can do with boredom and, and how you you use that you know if you're bored does it give you an impetus to go and do something different and i think that or, or change your life slightly you know and i also wonder if there's something particularly um pertinent or sort of fascinating in that the idea of sort of boredom when you're also living on the sort of verge of annihilation they talk about yeah. you know this being the end you know this is the end of the world as they know it and the idea that you at a time of such kind of um upheaval such death such kind of threat such violence that you would also have the time to be sitting around bored that in itself i think is a very odd uh, notion to get one's head around and i think that adds another level of sort of dynamism to the to the plot for me at least yeah and i i think that's right sort of what i was going back to going back with the with the the is it or is it not a love affair is mm. because if you're trying to leave boredom there's very few things that you can do you know you know that you know suddenly that 
things like that. There's rationing for certain days where they can't get they can't get drinks. Yeah, they can't even you know, have them. <laughs> can't, can't even have the rosé with the pizza. Yeah. You know, and um, and so I think that feels to me the most like almost the most truthful. If you if you're looking at um, as it as a testament side of things, then mm. what I think is interesting is that that lived experience. If you if you write about it from from big distance, I think the natural human um, memory uh, strategy is to just look, block out the border. You know, you block out the you, you know like Henry Joseph you know said fiction is um, life with the boring bits taken out. Well, you know that I think memory is like that as well. So having to remember what it was like, and I think you know we're going to see this with with pandemic literature particularly um, is will we remember that boredom in quite the same way yeah you know will we remember what it was really like to not leave the house already I've kind of forgotten about it you know you talk to people and and they say oh well you know you can't quite remember when the lockdowns really happened like you know the difference between one and the other what what all the different stages were um and you know that that can just can just kind of extends it's just a period of time but you don't remember the actual nuts and bolts of the board and so I think that's one of the things that is important about this book is that it's giving you a truthful recollection of that um without having to really dredge it from the memory so do I remember that do I do, do I exactly remember what that was like and in fact you don't quite remember in quite the same way so I think that's I think that's one of the great virtues of it having been written so quickly um, mm. afterwards. That's not to say it got published straight away. It wasn't published in Germany until the 50s and first published in an English translation. So I think she's the real deal. I, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's very little that, that touches transit for me in terms of allying all the things which I love into one book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't put it any better than that. If uh, if listeners haven't already read it, I'm sure we've convinced them to go and check it out now as a really, really wonderful um, addition to the Virago Modern Classics list. Um, let's talk about some other novels now, Stuart. What have you got on your bedside table at the moment? Tell me about two books that you're currently reading. Well, you see, this is hard because I've, I mean, I've just got books everywhere, yeah. and uh, books that I'm reviewing, books that I'm that I've been sent to give quotes for. Um, but two that that that, are, that really stick out for me at the moment. One of which I'm I'm about three quarters of the way way through, and this has really intruded on my reading time to do so. Um, is Lapvona by Artessa Moshvek. Um, mm. So this is coming out in June. I just think she's the most interesting writer in the world right now. Um, her and Olga Tokarczuk. Um, I just I, I there's nothing she can't do and. I, I think the great power of her writing was that um, uh, my wife hated Eileen, the, the, her, her first novel, with such a passion. She came back from New York having got a copy. She just hated it, like, really, really hated it. A visceral uh, reaction a to visceral it. A visceral reaction, which is not unusual in this house, it has to be said. Um, and then uh, I, I just thought, oh, well, I'm not going to bother reading it, reading it then. Um, and then I was in a, an amazing independent bookshop called Flocks, which is in Leighton, not far away from where I live. And I was meeting my friend and I have a rule that if I go into an independent bookshop, that if there's anything even remotely that, look, that looks like something I would want to read, I will buy it. 
that's that's my my golden that's an rule. Excellent for rule. I can tell you that it's only happened once in the last few years where I couldn't find anything that I didn't want. So I went to Flocks and there was nothing really that stood out um, apart from this attachment march for the, my year of um, rest and relaxation, which on the face of it is everything that I dislike in a book. Um, <laughs> rich narrations, 9-11, uh, all of this stuff. It's just not me. And I, I really don't like it. Clever narrated, all of that stuff. I wasn't interested. But there was nothing else. And I thought, right, okay, I'm going to buy this. And I sat outside in the sunshine and waited for my friend to arrive. And I read the first three pages and I was absolutely hooked. I was just, mm. and I read everything by her. Um, and um, The Death in Her Hands, which is which is a fantastic book. Um, and this is, I think, I think her best work. It's It's set in the, in, in some kind of dim and distant past, possibly medieval kind of times, certainly like 13th, 14th century, something like that, about a poor son of a vicious, vicious man. Basically, this these family dynamics playing out in the bogs and disgustingness of, uh, of kind of plague era Britain. And it's extraordinary. It's funny. It's really, really dark. It's full of kind of half allusions to magic while at the same time being a, a huge um, exploration of, of, of privilege and of um, wealth and of power um, and of dominion over one's uh, over over oneself. So it's an astonishing book and I'm really loving it. Um, and the other one which I picked out from the from the growing stack, um, a big mention to Vagabonds uh, by Logsia Sunday, uh, which I can't wait to read. So I'm slightly cheating now. Um, but um, <laughs> a big shout out to that, which I'm, and also to um, Jude Rogers' um, the, the, uh, the Sound of Modern Life, which is um, a, a book about um, music, about music and her journey through music, which is astonishing, mm. um, uh, which I love very much. Um, and then Elizabeth Hardwick, Sleepless Nights, which is um, a very slim sort of novel thing it's 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 difficult to kind of post it uh, as to exactly what it is but it is as Didion says extraordinary and haunting that's exactly what it is it's it's just an astonishing I mean I've only read like the first sort of 30 pages or so but um the voice is extraordinary and it's a kind of a collage of, of letters biography pieces about New York She's an extraordinary writer as part of She wrote a, a, an excellent collection of essays um, called Seduction and Betrayal, which if mm. you haven't come across is, is, is um, it's actually one of those great things where I've met, I've mentioned Seduction and Betrayal to lots and lots of people. And often when you do that, people are kind of like, oh, I've not heard of that or that. Oh, I'll look that up. And the amount of people who said, actually, I found that in a bookshop or somebody else recommended that to me. It's one of those kind of like hand sell jobs um so but sleepless nights i'm really really enjoying uh, along with all those other books which i mentioned given that you get sent so many books and presumably and like you say you're going into you're buying presumably books and but all the time how do you work out what you're gonna pick up and read next are you quite a sort of magpie in terms of do you buy books and then start looking at them and then get distracted by something else or are you quite good at kind of working your way through your, the pile by your bedside table quite religiously oh god i'm awful no I, I flip around the house looking at things um and you know i can i can pick something up and read 50 pages and then leave it and not finish it for another two years um other, other times i'll sit down and read something straight the way through um 
usually I've got about four or five books on the go. So yeah, I'm, I'm very magpie-ish. But one thing I do like to do is I like to have a book, a non-fiction book, a, at least one or two novels, and then something from the past on the, on, on, right. on, the, on, on the go at any one time. I find that that's really useful. If I'm writing, which I am at the moment, I try to read things which are very different, or set, at least set in a different period to to the time which i'm reading i i find i couldn't be without fiction there right? i couldn't not i couldn't not do that and i remember party i was introduced to will self you know very starry and i got one question for will self and you know very small amount of time and i said i said what are you reading and he said i'm writing at the moment i only read military fi- military history when i'm when i'm writing and i thought well, god how boring <laughs> like yeah. you know like why would you why would you give up part of that life part of your yeah. life because you're writing. I mean, I, I understand the, the concept behind it, but you know, it's unlikely I'm going to be massively influenced by, I don't know, reading some, you know, a, a book by someone who's very different to the style in which I write. I mean, you might mm. get, be able to nick some ideas, or you might be able to channel some of the energy. I think that's more like. I think that's more important. I think getting the the kind of the underlying influence of people is really fascinating to me right. where you know when someone says you know who's who who your most inspirational writers who do, who do you who you're most inspired by and they come out with five writers and you're like god i would never have guessed that from from the output that they write you know that you wouldn't have you wouldn't necessarily said that you know this person was hugely influenced by george sand for example or whatever right. it might be you know, but there it is, and it's there. And once you see it, you kind of say, "Oh, yeah, I can sort of see that in a way that they approach mm. something." It's not you always know. an obvious kind of transference, yeah. just you know, plot or character or something. Yeah, there's, there's other things going on beneath the surface, right? Yeah. Well, you haven't got to the military history stage of. <laughs> no, I think that's unlikely. <laughs> I'll show you back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy's Girls, and I'm talking to Stuart Evers about his magpie reading habits. Next up, Stuart, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about an art show that you saw recently, which again, I think is a first for us. We haven't had anyone talking about um, uh, exhibitions on this podcast yet, but tell us about the show you've recently seen. Yeah, so I went to see um, Post-War Modern at the Barbican. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you. I rarely go to um, art exhibitions outside of the photographer's gallery and the Tate. The reason for the Tate is because I'm a member there and uh, the photographer's gallery, because 
everyone should go to the photographer's gallery all the time and see everything that they ever do there because it's it, it's a place of great inspiration for me um mm. and i and i love it dearly and desperately um but i do kind of balk at paying 20 pounds to go and see an art exhibition i am one of those people i wouldn't mind dropping 20 pounds on a book but an art exhibition i, I do kind of working less poor i'm not paying 20 pounds on that anyway <laughs> but this was on and it's my sweet spot this this is my kind of the area that i'm most interested in the blind light is set very much in 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 post-war britain and there's mm. a lot of kind of modern modernistic ideas within within the novel so this is a real kind of sweet spot for me and i couldn't not go and I found it extraordinary. I really genuinely did. As a survey of what is going on in that time, whether it's photography, whether it's sculpture, whether it's abstract, whether it's very figurative and or whether it's design work, um, pop art, just the explosion of ideas that within the within this and it it made me I'm not a patriotic person by any stretch of the imagination, but my goodness me, it made me feel very proud to to be going around that and saying that that this is this came from the same wellspring as as, as my parents, you know, like a lot of this mm. stuff that's going on. Um, and the, there's two particular rooms within that. It's a very big exhibition, and yeah. it is worth every penny of your of your twenty pounds to go around and see it. Obviously, there are concessions as well, so you know, if you're a concession, definitely go. There's two rooms that really stuck out. One of which is a room which has got two Francis Bacon paintings and two David Hockney paintings, both of them allusions, whether overt or, or covert, to the uh, criminalisation of homosexuality in, in the UK. Um, there is, the, the Hockney paintings are, are very funny. They're kind of, they're freed up by his, by his visits to, to New York. So they've got this kind of freedom to them. Whereas the Bacon paintings are, well, they're terrifying, obviously, but they're, they're just men in dark rooms with kind of obscured faces, like they've been scratched out, like they've been like tried to be erased or mm. they've tried to erase themselves. And it's two very different ideas of, of homosexual, um, both desire and then also homosexual visibility. And they're, they're, they're extraordinary. And to, to have them like in this darkened room against one another, it, it, it was really kind of uh, affecting to, to see that. And they're so, I mean, they're, they're incredible paintings. Both, you know, the Hockney ones have humour and the, the Bacon ones have this kind of terror, but they both seem to come from a similar wellspring. They still come from the same place. So that really, I mean, I, I must have hung around in there for about half an hour, just kind of going from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. And then the other one um, is there's a room on the ground floor which has four paintings, I believe. So four, yeah, it must be four paintings by John and Jean Bratby, um, who I had never heard of, had this a, a completely abusive relationship. And the, the fact is you go into the room and the first thing that you see is Jean Bratby, the artist, naked at a kitchen table. The kitchen table is full of kind of detritus of, modern life like cigarette cigarette ends and uh, uh cereal packets and things like that and she's got these kind of pleading imploring eyes um almost to say save me and it, it it just it stopped me dead and at first i wondered whether that was a self-portrait but it's not this is a portrait from from john of his wife and then to the right of that is a is a self-portrait of john 
the artist. And he's like this kind of Byronic figure. He's got a cigarette in his mouth. He's got the glasses. He's all kind of almost like a bullfighter, you know? And then to the left of that, then there's the, the portrait that Jean had made of, of him, which is him in his pajamas lying back on a, on a sofa, um, looking like a, like an invalid basically. And it's this astonishing fight going on you can see it in real term it's vicious and it's nasty and yet it's playing nice um it's kind of like oh no i i you know it's trying to get across what is happening in a power dynamic in a relationship Mm. in such a way that you because they're next to each other you can see them but otherwise you wouldn't have seen them next to one another right and then she has a very famous self-portrait or safe self-portrait with with black eye and it's never explained it's never said how the black eye is but you know the inference is is absolutely clear from from what's been going on i just became slightly i mean i don't i mean i didn't leave that room for almost an hour i think i just couldn't i i was trying to work out what it would have been like to have those two people in the house at the same time Mm. painting essentially the same kinds of paintings but from such very very different perspectives and very different ideas and you know the question is like did she pose for him for that naked picture and right yes if so is her expression one that she's that she's giving him and in which case is he is he putting that across truthfully you know is he is he painting what he's seeing or is he painting what he thinks is there or is it just his skill as an artist, which means that the eyes are bigger than one would expect? You know, it's all of these kinds of these kinds of things. And those were two out of a out of an exhibition of extraordinary range. Um, there were those those two rooms. And then something which made me very happy um, was that in one of the rooms, there was um, a, a, a brief uh, exploration of textiles and fabric. And within that was a a short chief of um, design work from someone called uh, Althea McNish, um, who is just an astonishing forerunner for um, for designers in this country. Um, and there's an exhibition of hers actually on at the William Morris House in Walthamstow, which mm. is free. And if you've got a spare day, hour, weekend, whatever, please go and see it because it's an astonishing story about how she was a student. She's a, um, a, a young black student at Manchester College of Art, I think it was. And a guy came around who was who'd invented rayon, um, this artificial fabric, which was which really needed bold colours and prints. And he walked around and he saw Althea's work and said, I want you to come work for me. And she ended up working for Liberties. And her design work, you will you will recognize it. Even if you've never seen her work before, you mm. will recognize it, the bold patterns. And she's just an extraordinary force. And, um, I, you know, and it was really glad to see her within this greater context. There's also some Lee Miller photographs, which are, which are amazing. Like as transit is kind of catnip for me in terms of all the things that it's doing with the novel, this was everything that I could want from an exhibition, pretty much. It sounds really fascinating. And I'm so glad that you've, 
discuss you know you've picked up on those sort of curatorial impulses in it because I think with exhibitions like that and I haven't seen this one yet though you've totally made me want to go and see it that sometimes when there's so much material there and some such kind of disparate sources even though it's all united by the period that it entirely depends on the curation of it and what's yeah. put against what and the fact that you've been able to talk about those particular rooms and the the, sort of the strength of the reaction that you had to them it makes me much more inclined to go and want to see it now yeah it's it's a fascinating exhibition I mean I, I just thought of the survey of what was going on in terms of you know it could have been quite white and safe when in fact they seem to have genuinely gone looking for things which were exciting and different okay and edgy it sounds quite edgy as well you know we we think about the 40s and 50s and we think of rationing and uh and doldrums and uh, and people wearing the same clothes as their parents and all the rest of it but there's there's a whole group of artistic people who are who are blazing a trail mm. you know particularly women and and gay men and gay women who are really kind of doing things which are extraordinary by by anyone's standards but in a in a situation where you're so hampered and they are the real trailblazers in that in that postmodern era and showing people that they they have something not just to offer but that something which is going to be transformative and i think that the thing to me is that some of these, some of these, this work still feels transgressive today. That's the great power of the exhibition is that, you know, there might be stuff that you don't like, as with all of these things as a survey of a massive wadge of time, then obviously you're not going to. But I think you'll find stories and, and, um, and expressions of life there that you perhaps won't find in other galleries put beautifully put beautifully thank you um next up Stuart can you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way I'm always so intrigued by the answer to these questions because everyone comes up with something so different yeah I find this I mean I find this difficult in a, in a, in a couple of ways obviously mm. being the first man on the podcast that you know, answering <laughs> a question about permanent feminism is, is an interesting one because I spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of different things which is you know one of the very great things about being a writer is that you do get that chance just to sit down and be allowed to think and consider that work. Um, but one of the things which I, which I, I think about a lot is, is how much do I listen, which is conf confirmation bias. So how much of what I read is based around the fact that growing up my, certainly my, my late teens, my, my best friends were, were girls. Um, we, read the same books we read the mm. same things we would we, you know that that um my experience of of feminism is is very much centered around what two girls and me were reading in 1991 and 1992 uh in a small town in the northwest of england so you know there's a lot of stuff which you know, I'm mo and I don't read an awful lot of nonfiction. I read a lot more nonfiction now than I did, but certainly that age, I was only I only really read novels. So, um, you know, these first feminist in inverted commas books that I would, that would say was the, the Awakening by Kate Chopin was 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 the book that kind of started it all um, in lots of ways. Um, it, I got it. It was a women's press edition, and I got it um, from the library sale. Um, and I'd read Madame Bovary and I, I and I and this was kind of like a counterpoint to, to Madame Bovary. So I read that and and passed that around to, to one of my friends. And um, then I think for my 15th birthday, my mum bought me the golden notebook, 
um, and said that this was really important. But my mum's a, my mom's a really, really colossal figure in my life. Like I, mm. both my parents are, but my mum particularly, just in terms of, you know, coming from a very working class background as a first person to go to further education, a love of books, love of reading, but also very strident in her opinions about where women fit in the world and the things okay. that she has had to overcome in order to do that. So my mother influenced a lot of, in inverted commas, feminist thought in, in, in me. So like the Golden Notebook, which I actually reread just recently. Have you have you read it recently, Lucy? Mm, I read it a couple of years ago for the first time. Yeah, and I, was I found so, it quite. I, I found it quite hard going. Hard going, but I, I like the, certainly the opening. I found tremendously contemporary. I didn't, I, you know, mm. I, I, I just imagine how shocking that would have been. Yeah, way back. I mean, I, I, I the reason why I, I liked it was because it felt like the kinds of books which I was really into. So it, it felt like a 1930s novel to me, but with like with massive feminist bells on, really. You know, like that kind of. Um, so I was really into that, and so I think that was that was the first kind of big thing but the but the book that which, I, which I've, I've chosen to talk about is um gorilla my love by tony Cade bambara and i was really picking up on what you said about changing your mind about feminism and it goes back to what i was saying about my understanding of feminism coming from the kinds of things that that um you know three white people in the northwest of england were were reading um i after i graduated from university i went to um live in birmingham and um i started working at um dylan's bookstore there and we worked in the fiction section and what was really great was that um, a whole bunch of very young people all in their you know early to mid 20s um and we'd all work on the fiction section and we'd all pass around books that we really loved um nice. and um and my friend sarah had done her MA yeah MA on um African American literature and so she just said you need to read um uh, the rise of watching god sorry uh, you need to read uh, the rise of watching god by Zora Neale Hurston that's just like a, that's you know that's I know you've standard. read I know you've read Toni Morrison I know you have and I'm very impressed that you've you know you've read Tar, Tar Baby and and you know Song of Solomon not just beloved you know, but you need to read that this is really really important that you read it and I read that and, you know, it's going back to the source in lots of ways, you know, like, and, you know, she was suggesting like Chester Himes and Harlem Renaissance people. And it was, it was a really good introduction before that, before that became something that is, is very prominent now. But at the time, these were books that weren't perhaps getting the, the, the attention that they deserve mm. perhaps probably outside of academia, academia yeah if you academia. weren't studying them you might yeah, not be picking precisely. them up in your local bookshop right yes um and so uh at this time sarah i was sitting in on a on a, on a um uh, a rep had come round, and it was the rep for the women's press and they'd uh got this book called um those bones are not my child by tony k bambara which is I mean, Massive doesn't do it justice. It's like 950 mm. pages and it was unfinished at the time of her death. And Toni Morrison, who's a great friend of hers, um, edited it and, and basically got it ready for publication. Um, and I became very intrigued by by her as a writer. She died very young, like way, way, way too young. Um, and she was very interested in film. Uh, and she's got this incredible collection, which I would 
highly recommend of, of, of essays and stories, but the essays particularly is Deep Sightings and Rescue Missions, um, where she talks about um, uh, feminism and racism in response to film. And it's really strident. It, 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 it doesn't in any way soften the blow. It's not, it's not written for me to feel better about myself. It's written because it needs to be written. And those are kind of far more direct interpretations of the stories in Gorilla My Love. And Gorilla My Love is unashamedly um, a, a collection of stories that are about the people that she knows and the uh, people around her and the community around her. Um, and they're extraordinary. And I, I and like I say, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. So a lot of the kind of inverted commas feminist thought that I've that I've consumed has come through novels and through fiction. Mm. And Gorilla My Love is just it's just extraordinary. And it made me think, even though I'd read Toni Morrison and even though I'd read I saw Neil Hurston, I felt that this was a different a slightly different approach. It, it felt like Tony, perhaps, Tony K. Bambara perhaps wouldn't care less what I thought. <laughs> and I, and I, I know that sounds like a silly thing, bearing in mind that, you know, Tony Morris has that very famous interview where she, you know, where she's asked, you know, why aren't there white people in your books? And she gives the most astonishing, like brilliant strident response to that. But it felt like I was being, I was being allowed to hear what was going on in the beauty beauty parlors in for, just for example in, in Birmingham where you know with all the um you know um West Indian women or whatever would be sitting around you know having their nails done or you know like and I'd be like I've been invited in there but mm. I was in no circumstance were I allowed to say anything or to interject other all, all I had to do was listen and you know as as we always know, the most important thing we can do is read and listen. You know, it's when I when I talk, teach creative writing courses, it's the it's the thing that I, you know when people say, well, "What can I do to get published? What can I do to do this? What can I?" What? And I say, "Well, the two things you do: you can read more and you can listen more. And the more you listen and the more you read, the more you will understand, the better writer you will be." And I I hundred percent believe that. And I think what Gorilla My Love did was it showed me that just by being me and not being a man with conventional ideas of uh, of masculinity or femininity or whatever, just because I don't have those, I feel like I don't have them. That doesn't mean that they're not there. Mm. And it's a challenge. You know, it's a challenge to say, this is going on. This is going on all around you. And you need to be prepared to listen. And you need to understand that your perceived notions of what is going on and the way things are is really, is really maybe wrong. You know, you, you, you might have got completely the wrong end of the stick. And the more that I read and I try to I try to read as many wide things as possible, I try, you know, I mean, not extreme stuff and like on the right necessarily, but but certainly feminist writing, which is deeply challenging to men. And I think that's. That's I think that's, you know, if you're talking about writing, which considers that P and V sex is, you know, is always an act of, of some form of, of abuse. We, you know, I've read some of these things and I, I you know, I, many, many years ago, I, one of the fir very first stories I tried to write was about a, a, a young man discovering that his mother was a radical feminist in um, 
in university and had written all these series of papers essentially claiming that you know all sex was rape kind of thing mm. um and it was me kind of working my work even then trying to work out what are my opinions towards that and how much of that is based around the fact that this is about me you know mm. as, a, as a man and and that's one of the things that i think that when we talk about feminine when well when men talk about feminism we find it really hard not to involve ourselves or not to not to be part of it because as soon as we start talking about it we have become part of that and trying trying to be a great ally and try to trying to amplify women's voices um and all marginalized voices or or voices that that, that but, but particularly like women's voices you know what can we do and i have two sons and you know the biggest feminist challenge that i have in you know and my wife has is to make sure that my boys grow up and are confident and happy within their own gender and also that they are happy to extend and help their uh you know their women friends and partners or whatever it might be to to really kind of amplify their voices and to listen and to be uh, to not sit down with stereotypes and mm. these are things that we we really struggle with as parents because you know you don't want to be that dad who says you know you shouldn't do that you shouldn't wear that you shouldn't be that you know and, and you know thankfully I'm not but there are certain times where I can feel myself there's an inner my dad in me and I can feel myself saying oh you know that's basically when it's showing off that's what it is it's it's actually got nothing to do with gender it's all about showing off with my dad it's like stop showing off that's the that's the the kind of mantra and I think that's that that's the difference but for but for us how our children react and how our children are seen in the world and how they react and amplify those voices for women is is crucial and that's the most that we can the, the the most that we can do in terms of that that generation but I still, even now, I feel slightly uncomfortable describing myself as a feminist because I don't feel like I don't feel I get to make that decision. Okay. You get that you get that decision. You know, if my wife says, you know, oh, you know, Stuart is more of a feminist than I am. It's meant as a joke, but but the fact it can be said that that works for me rather than me saying, well, as a feminist, I I I don't feel like that's on me to be able to say that's who I am. Only my actions will will define whether I am or not um Mm. and I think that comes from you know from my friends my friends um, Vicky Helen and Sarah when 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 I was growing up made such a huge influence on me as a as a person because you know just on a very basic level I saw their shitty boyfriends right you know I saw quite scared men trying to bracket women into particular holes and saying right okay well yeah I know you want to go to university but you'll probably come back when you afterwards and that you know that kind of kind of thing and you know we're only talking 90s we're only talking like 30 years ago but that was still a very big pressure and one that I'm I'm guessing probably still goes on. I'm really interested in what you say about it's not your responsibility to sort of call yourself a feminist which I totally under I, I, I think that's a very admirable point of view. I'm fascinated though to know in front of other men, would you describe yourself as a feminist? Would you feel more comfortable saying it in, in, in that company or not? It's an interesting question. I think I possibly would. I'm very fortunate in that all of my all of my male friends are 
very much of a similar persuasion to me. Yeah. That, you know, we talk about our feelings and we talk about, you know, calling out behavior. You know, that's that. I mean, that's one of the big things for men that one man can do is calling out behavior. And thankfully, we don't, you know, go out with men who, who are a problem. I and, mean, you know, that's yeah, you know, you're unlikely to hang out with people who are horrifically yeah, anti-feminist but, if you are a feminist yourself. Yes. Yeah. The fact is that you do need to be around people who understand what you mean. So if you if, if I were to say to one of my friends, you know, speaking from a feminist perspective it's pro- that's probably how I would that's how I would phrase it I would say from a feminist perspective and they would understand what that means but I think there's such a lot of opportunity for someone to take the mick out of you by saying oh, oh you're feminist are you you know like not in a in a horrible bantery kind of way but just in a kind of well prove yourself in that respect so I just mm-hmm. like I say I think it's about action and about what you do with your life rather than just hiding behind a word um and saying well that absolves me from this you know i have a long a lot of the stuff that i've written about is before toxic masculinity was a thing um i mean not it's never not been a thing if you see what i mean but but before that it was named as such a lot of the stuff that i was writing about was about that that the 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 notion of masculinity but i've never described it as toxic masculinity because i think toxic masculinity lets men off and I think that we label toxic masculinity as such because um, it's easier for men to say, well, I don't have toxic masculinity. That belongs to the other. The other has toxic masculinity. And you can hive it off and you can say that that's not me. And I f- it always feels to me like a get out. Fair enough. And last up today, Stuart, can I ask you to tell me about a woman or a person of unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire? Again, I think this is quite a tricky question, but I'm always fascinated by the responses. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. I have to say that I I I went here with with a with a writer, um, and it's not because I I don't do anything else. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's okay if you don't. I just read books and go to art galleries. I went with Marguerite Dura. I did that because she's probably my favourite writer. She wrote across so many different genres and in so many different ways. Uh, wrote about herself and not about herself. Thought about all aspects of society, not just her own particular lived experience. Uh, and also wrote, well, it's one of the best films that's ever been. Uh, uh, Hiroshima Monomore Mono is just an indelible work of art. It's a, it's a, it's an astonishing, captivating story, and. You know that was that's her first screenplay. She just did it like she was, like she was born to do it. Mm. Um, and both in fiction and non-fiction, I find a depth of feeling and a depth of understanding in her work which I don't find with many other writers. Um, I'm quite fond of this quote, but I, mean, I, I think the critic John Self mentioned it, which was that um, Martin Amis said that. Uh, that every writer has a perfect reader uh and his was Saul Bellow and I kind of feel that with 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 Durar where I feel like I came to her quite late but just at the perfect time and I think that's often really important isn't it when when Mm. you when you're finding when you're finding writers is that you know you find them at the wrong time and they're not really doing what you need them them to do or um or you're very impressed with them and then suddenly you realize they're actually not that great or whatever it is but I found Dura just at the right time and she writes about love in a way that I'd always wished 
to write about love. I, I, when I first started writing stories, I thought my main subject was romantic love. That's what I, what I thought my first subject was. But actually, my, my, my subject's family and however family is constructed, whether through friends or whether through, you know, usual paternal, maternal links, grandparents, whatever. Um, and I think that her depictions of desire and love and the absence of that um, are astonishing. So um, uh, Moderato Cantabile, um, which is the first of hers that I read, um, has a husband who doesn't exist in the background. You know he's there, but he's not there. And it's just, it's such a clever device to have someone talking about someone who you know must be there, but but is never quite described or it's just a ghost in the background. Um, and it's a perfect way of describing how that that woman that woman is feeling, um, and her work resonates across in terms of her mental states as well. Lots of things which I read in her. There's a collection of essays called Practicalities. When you find out what it really is, it's just her sitting in a bar with with her friend who might be her lover and might not, and she's just talking. She's talking about her life and the things which are important to her. And then she edits it, edits them down. And then, and then that's the book. And it's a tremendous wellspring of, 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 of incredible insight and wit and intelligence about the human condition, but specifically about women, about alcoholism, about mental health. And she just, she did everything. I, I can't do this on a podcast, but can I just say that the, the, there's, a, there's a collection of essays called Me and Other Writings, uh, which the Dorothy Press published. And if you can get hold of a copy, because it's got the funny, I think the best author picture on the front cover of a book you'll ever see. <laughs> she kind of looks like she's dressed herself like a, like a, like a, like an itinerant librarian. And it's just sitting there with these big glasses on just going, what, you want a picture of me? You want a picture of me? This is me. And the book's called Me as well. So it's, it, it's a perfect combination. I saw that book in New York. I kept seeing the book. Every It must have just come out. And I saw it in every bookshop. And I thought, eventually, I'm going to have to buy that because the, the, she keeps following me around with her eyes. She keeps saying, like, you're not going to bother them. You're not going to. And, and it was it was a proper big. This would have been like 2017, something like that. It was a, it was, and I just read everything. I read everything that I could have got. You know, I just I just didn't stop buying books. And then I bought first editions and then i've got a, a a polish film poster for for one of her films as well which is really amazing which is framed downstairs and yeah i, I think you're just lucky when you meet those people when you meet those writers and that, that they just come at the right time everything that she did all of the all of the the heart heartache and the the kind of resilience that she had uh, just really speaks to me and you know there there are so many incredible women. Like I said, Eva Feige's would have, was another one that I that I would have um, that was my instant reactions. Or someone like Grace Paley, mm. you know, other other writers, um, you know, that would have would have really definitely been on that list. But um, she's my absolute go-to these days. And if anybody ever says, "Oh, recommend me something," I probably haven't read. I'll be like, "Right, I just go through some obscure Dura books, and then they're, they're away." <laughs> Um, the one, the one that I often come to is Emily L, um, okay. which is, um, uh, I think is out of print, but Emily L is, oh, I mean, it, it's, it's so sad and yet it's, it's, it's so wonderfully itself. And also she's got great titles. Like one of them's called the ravishing of Lowell Stein. What a great, oh, the ravishing of Joel. It's amazing. Mm. Um, but yeah. So read anything. I mean, 
if you're going to start anywhere, read, read The Lover. Obviously, that's the her famous one. But there's so much more to her than just, you know, that one book. That's perfect. What a brilliant place to end. I think I'm so glad you chose um, Dura. She hasn't she hasn't made it onto the podcast yet, but you've made an impassioned uh, shout in her direction. So I hope listeners will go and enjoy lots of her work. Thank you so much, Stuart. You've given us lots to think about and um, certainly added to my to read list. So thank you very much for that. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team of Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Stuart Evers, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.